Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 20, Hockey, Canadian Identity, and the Summit Series of 1972. And folks, this is also the final episode of Season 3. We will reconvene in September with Episode 1 of Season 4 and a whole new season of awesome, cool Canadian history. But for today... Hockey has always played a central role in efforts to forge a Canadian identity. While today it is still Canada's most popular sport, it is doubtful if it means as much as it once did. For there was a time when a Red Army challenged Canada's domination of her sport, and a simple hockey tournament became the battleground for the Cold War. Today's book recommendation is Canada's Game, Hockey and Identity, edited by Andrew Holman and published by McGill Queen's Press in 2009. This book is a series of essays by Canadian scholars from across the country exploring all facets of the game's meaning to Canadians and posing thought-provoking questions about the game's place in a modern Canadian nation. It is well worth the read. Okay, so we need to set the stage for a discussion of hockey and sport policy in Canada by examining what was going on culturally in Canada in the 1950s. You see, in the aftermath of the Second World War, many Canadians became concerned about various aspects of Canadian identity as the country seemed to be moving closer and closer into the shadow and the influence of the United States of America, while moving farther and farther from the traditional bosom of Great Britain. As part of this move, many Canadian politicians and commentators became increasingly concerned about what was deemed mass culture, pop culture, or even sometimes referred to as low culture that was spilling across the border and being consumed by Canadians. This mass culture took many forms, comic books, radio programs, American television programs, westerns and soap operas were a particular concern, American movies like gangster and horror films caused some of the most consternation, and American music, specifically 
Elvis Presley's shaking hips. These are all just examples of this type of American mass culture or pop culture that was becoming more and more popular amongst Canadians, while eliciting growing fears amongst Canadian politicians, religious leaders, social commentators, that Canadian youth and Canadian identity in general were becoming watered down or even too, dare I say it, Americanized. The 1950s thus saw a widespread concerted effort by successive Canadian governments to create programs that both protected and promoted Canadian culture. Wrapped up in discussions of culture were, of course, Canadian sport. Two things seemed to be woven into discussions of sport in Canada. Firstly, there were fears that young Canadians were declining in their physical fitness, something that could very well lead to the Soviets and other communist countries getting an edge, not just in competition, but perhaps in war as well. Secondly, and certainly related to the former point, Canadian athletes were not very successful in international sporting competitions. For instance, the Soviet hockey team had regularly beaten Canada at a number of international sporting events throughout the 50s. Perhaps equally shocking was our results of the 1960 Summer and Winter Olympics. Yes, they happened in the same year, where we received one medal in the Summer Games in Rome and four medals in the Winter Games in the United States. Again, one needs to consider the influence on the Cold War on all of this rhetoric. Every sporting event that was seen internationally played out as a test of character and strength between the Western democracies and the Eastern communist nations. Even future Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson, who played both lacrosse and hockey growing up, spoke up in the House of Commons and said, The communists use international sport as they use everything else for the advancement of prestige and political purposes. It is a matter of some consequence that we in Canada should do what we can to develop and regain the prestige we once had. Now, the first serious legislation passed in regards to these growing concerns about Canadian athletics was known as Bill C-131, pushed through Parliament by Prime Minister Diefenbaker's Conservatives in 1961. This was intended to be a bill that funneled more subsidies into promoting Canadian athletes with a particular eye towards international competition. Though bureaucratic red tape and a lack of serious direction continually hampered this program. Sport continued to be a fairly serious topic for politicians throughout the 1960s. By the late 1960s, not only was the Cold War still raging, But Canada was now faced with a resurgent Quebec that was transforming itself economically, politically, and socially. Part of this transformation was a shift in identity and the beginnings of a Quebecois independence movement. In response, Liberal Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau actively sought symbols that could act as unifiers for both the Quebecois and English Canadians. And sport certainly offered that, and in particular, hockey. Pierre Trudeau was the man who famously quoted that Canada's two biggest exports were hockey players and cold fronts. One of the major steps Trudeau took was to order a task force to look into how Canada could promote and support hockey 
in a way that fit his broader goals of national unity. But hockey in Canada was somewhat of a complex beast. During the 1950s, several European countries began to develop fairly serious hockey programs, Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union leading the way, and the once dominant Canadian international teams suddenly found themselves losing. In 1954, for instance, Canada was shocked when the Toronto Lyndhurst, an amateur team representing Canada at the International Ice Hockey Championships, was beaten in the finals 7-2 by the Soviet Red Army team. Now, the next year, a team from Canada returned, the Penticton Vs, and won 5-0. But for the rest of the decade, these Canadian amateur teams faced stiff competition, particularly from the Soviet Union's Red Army hockey team. By the 1960s, however, the Soviet Union were consistently winning gold at both the Olympics and the International Ice Hockey Championships, threatening Canada's hockey standing abroad. Now, in terms of professional organizations, in the post-war period, both in the NHL and minor league teams, the vast majority of franchises were located in the United States. Now, Montreal and Toronto, of course, had NHL franchises, and Vancouver had the only minor league team. At the same time, the vast majority of players on those teams were Canadian. Something like 80 to 90% of NHL players were Canadian in the 1960s. Now the question around sort of Canadian circles and within Canadian political commentary and sport commentary was, is the sport really ours anymore? It should be noted here that the teams Canada were facing abroad were almost entirely full-time hockey players. You see, the Soviet Red Army team was just that. Members of the Soviet military, the Red Army, who spent all their days training to play hockey. Moscow certainly saw hockey, and most international sport, as an important part of its Cold War international policy, proving the East was better than the West. Meanwhile, the Canadian teams going over to Europe were amateurs, who had to generally pay their own way. As well, most of the key international hockey events seemed to always take place during the Stanley Cup Finals, making it impossible to put together a Canadian squad of top professionals. It should be noted that even when these Canadian amateur teams were losing to the Soviets, most Canadians comforted themselves, perhaps too boldly, with the simple knowledge that were Canadian professionals to go over to meet the Soviets, the Soviets would not have a chance. Another shift in hockey made Canadians stop and think about the state of the sport in the late 1960s in relation to their claim on the sport being a crucial part of Canadian identity. You see, in 1967, the NHL expanded into six new American cities, the California Seals, Los Angeles Kings, Minnesota North Stars, Philadelphia Flyers, and St. Louis Blues. Vancouver had applied and had been rejected in favor of Philadelphia. In many ways, by the late 1960s, Canadians were the working class of the NHL. These guys were not being paid the equivalent of millions today. Many of them were average fellows from small Canadian towns who now made their living in the United States, playing for American crowds and earning money for an American league and making lots of money for American team owners. So, we have the rise of Eastern Europe, 
in terms of its interest in hockey, specifically the communist superpower that was the Soviet Union. We have a resurgent Quebec that is starting to discuss a potential future outside of Canada. We have an NHL that is expanding throughout the United States, but generally treating Canada as a feeder system for U.S. teams. This was becoming a full-blown hockey crisis. If hockey is innately tied into Canadian identity, then in many ways, this was becoming a Canadian identity crisis. Now, we should stop right now and say that it is not a stretch to claim this was part of a Canadian identity crisis in the 1960s. In numerous cultural industries in the country, the Canadian government was setting up and expanding subsidy programs to promote further Canadian cultural production, while also establishing quota systems to prevent American cultural forms from overwhelming Canadian cultural consumers. One of the most poignant examples of this was Canadian content regulations established in 1968, dictating Canadian radio play a certain percentage of Canadian-made music every day, with failure to do so resulting in fines and even radio stations being shut down. Okay, so we've established, generally speaking, that hockey and Canadian identity were both in flux during the 1960s, as Canadians sought symbols to unite while also having their traditional symbols challenged in very fundamental ways. All of this intellectual and cultural energy blended with this existential threat would eventually culminate in the Summit Series of 1972. A reminder, you can find us all on your podcast listening devices as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. If you happen to go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the opportunity to make a one-time donation, whereas Patreon is kind of interesting because you can make a small donation per episode published. So you could say, I'll donate a dollar for every episode that they publish. So whichever way you want, We are extremely grateful for your support. You see, we survive solely on your donations, and every dollar is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. And as well, if you happen to go on our Facebook page or if you go on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please do not be shy. Now on with the program. So in this atmosphere of anxiety about Canadian identity and sport, Canadian planners began to reach out to Soviet planners to organize what was going to be a statement match. After much wrangling and nervous hand-wringing and back and forths between Canadian and Soviet planners, an eight-game series was finally agreed upon. Four games to happen in Canada and four to occur in the Soviet Union. Perhaps both sides wanted the option of a tie, lest a nuclear war were to erupt after an unfavorable result. The Soviet Red Army team contained players that are still considered some of the greatest to ever step on the ice, arguably one of the greatest ice hockey goaltenders of all time, then 20-year-old Vladislav Trechiak, also defenseman Alexander Ragulin, and the electrifying Valery Karlamov. 
there was no doubt that at least a few of these players were equals to many of the Canadians they were about to face. On the Canadian side, the roster read like an all-star lineup. Bobby Clark, Phil Esposito, Stan Makita, Pete Mahovlich, Frank Mahovlich, Serge Savard, Guy Lapointe, Ken Dryden, Marcel Dion, and even Bobby Orr was on the roster, though Orr was injured and could not actually play in the games. This would also be the first time that a Canadian hockey team going abroad would be given the official title of Team Canada. Certainly, the expectations amongst the players were that the Soviet team stood no chance. One anecdote even tells of former star goaltender Jacques Plante giving Trechiak tips on how to play against the Canadian forwards because he felt bad about the drubbing the young goaltender was about to get. There was no doubt that most people in Canada expected this to be a fairly easy victory to settle once and for all the issue of hockey dominance. The Soviet Red Army came out of the gates with a bang, winning 7-3 in Montreal on September 2nd. The Soviet team simply looked better, working together as a team, passing, cooperating, moving easily past the Canadian players who simply had not seen a team work together in such a way. The Canadians quickly pulled together and won Game 2 in Toronto, but a 4-4 tie was the result of Game 3 in Winnipeg, and then on September 7th, the Canadians lost once again, this time 5-3 in Vancouver. They left the ice to a chorus of boos. The easy victory so many expected had turned into a threat to Canada's position as the preeminent hockey superpower. Let's listen to an interview by Phil Esposito as he's getting off the ice after Game 4. For the people across Canada, we tried. We did our best. And uh, for the people that boo us, geez, I, I'm really... I, all of us guys are really disheartened and we're disillusioned and we're disappointed in some of the people. We cannot believe the bad press we've got, uh, the, the booing we've gotten in our own buildings. And if, if, if the Russians boo their, their players, if the fans, Russians boo their players like some of the Canadian fans, I'm not saying all of them, some of them booed us, then I'll come back and I'll apologize to each one of the Canadians, but I don't think they will. I'm really, really, I'm really disappointed. I am completely disappointed. I cannot believe it. Some of our guys are really, really down in the dumps. We know, we're trying, what the hell? I mean, we're, we're doing the best we can, and uh, they got a good team, and let's face facts. But uh, it doesn't mean that we're not giving it our 150%, because we certainly are. I think, uh, Phil, the disappointment is a natural thing, because it, the whole thing was an unexpected thing. They, you know, we all live with the National Hockey League. We have all been so proud over the years how great they are. It's unexpected because of the press said that we are so good. Or not one of well, us said yeah, that no, we were good. No, 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 this is the thing. This is the thing that I'm, on behalf of the fans, I must say that, uh, that uh, probably, since everything is, is relative, we know how good you people are. The people didn't realize how good the Soviet team was, and now we found out how good they are. I think we can appreciate how good both teams are. But I'll tell you, we we love. I mean, every one of us guys, 35 guys that came out and played for Team Canada, we did it because we love our country, and not for any other reason. No other reason. They can throw the money uh, for the pension fund out the window. They can throw anything they want out the window. We came because we love Canada, and even though we play in the United States and we earn money in the United States. 
Canada is still our home, and that's the only reason we come. And I don't think it's fair that we should be booed. It's amazing listening to that interview and thinking about the power of hockey at that time and the power of identity and the way Phil Esposito is speaking about the love of his country and how wrapped up this tournament is in his love for Canada. Nonetheless, when the Canadians traveled to Moscow two weeks later to complete the final four games of the series, they certainly had an immense task on their hand. However, they were greeted by a pretty incredible sight as 3,000 Canadians had made the trip to the Soviet Union to cheer them on. The fans were going to see a Canadian team that had thought long and hard about how it was going to beat the Soviets. They were going to quit with their dump and chase and begin to actually control the puck entering the Soviets' defensive zone while ensuring that they physically beat up their opponents at every given moment. One of the most infamous incidents was when Bobby Clark fractured Valery Karlamov's ankle with a wicked slash. Later, it was revealed that Team Canada assistant coach John Ferguson had told Clark to do it, noticing that Karlamov had already been nursing a sore ankle. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The fans that had made the long trip were to be disappointed initially when Team Canada lost its first game in Moscow 5-3. The series now stood three wins for the Soviets, one win for Canada, and one tie. A Canadian victory for the series as a whole seemed all but impossible. Three wins in a row were needed. Yet the incredible was about to occur. The Canadians won on September 24th, 3-2. Then again on September 26, 4-3. This last game was not only notable for the Canadian victory, in which Paul Henderson had scored the game winner, remember that name please, Paul Henderson, but it is also notable for the agreement between the two sides to remove a pair of German ICE officials that had been heavily penalizing the Canadians while barely penalizing the Soviets. The Soviets would actually renege on this agreement shortly before Game 8. So the series now stood at 3-3-1 going into the final eighth game. Barring a tie, one team was going to win this series. This final game, played on September 28th, was watched on television by the largest audience in Canadian history and still the largest per capita audience ever in Canadian television history. Controversy once again erupted when the Soviets decided they would not meet at center ice for a ceremony whereby Team Canada officials were going to present the Soviet Union with a ceremonial totem pole. The Soviets were angry at the Canadians' rough play, as well as what they deemed the unfair protest over the officiating. As one Team Canada official put it, the Canadians were going to take this totem pole and bring it to center ice. The Soviets will have to take it or skate around it the entire game. The Soviets chose to accept the token offering of friendship. The game, 
like the two before it, would come down to the wire. The Soviets were leading 5-3 after two periods, but the Canadians were able to score two in the third to tie it up. Then, with 34 seconds left in the game, Paul Henderson scored one of the most important goals in Canadian hockey history. One minute left to go, a 5-5 tie. This is the tie-breaking game. You couldn't get it any closer. Savard at his own blue line, turning around with Pat Stapleton coming out. Stapleton's pass on an open wing, but here's Cornwallier coming up for it. A long shot in off the stick of Esposito. Vasiliev goes back of the net. Cornwallier steals it. A pass in front. Henderson was upended as he tried to shoot it. Here's another shot. Henderson right in. He scores! So there you have it. Henderson scores the winning goal in Game 8, and Canada wins the Summit Series. Now in the aftermath, there was significant criticism of the Canadian style of play. Many of the Soviet players and coaches felt that the Canadians sought to injure them. Even Bobby Hall, who controversially was not allowed to join Team Canada, criticized Team Canada's tactics, stating that the Canadians had set bad examples for Canadian youth playing the game. Regardless, for many Canadians, they had won what was to be their most public Cold War battle. It was a close one, and while Canada could still claim to be the world's greatest hockey power, there was no question that the days of domination were coming to an end. The popularity of the Summit Series led to the creation of the Canada Cup International Ice Hockey Tournament, open to both pros and amateurs, and was first played in 1976. As well, a series of Super Series were organized afterwards between NHL clubs and Soviet clubs. By the 1980s, the first Swedish and Czech players started appearing in the NHL, with Soviet players able to finally join the league in the late 1980s when the Soviet Union collapsed. In terms of hockey, the Summit Series forced many Canadians to rethink how they were preparing and training their players. The more finesse style of the Soviet system started to be studied and soon adopted by various players and coaches, as well as new types of training copied from the Soviet system. In terms of Canadian identity, well, that one is much harder to identify. In the years following, Canada and Canadians continued to champion ice hockey as the quintessential Canadian sport, and most international ice hockey events created a passionate following amongst Canadian hockey fans. While Canada became more and more multicultural, hockey remained a cornerstone of the complex and often vague idea of what it meant to be a Canadian. Successive governments from the 1970s onwards have continued to pour money into Canadian hockey and sport, and generally speaking, 
the results have been a fairly solid string of successes. The Vancouver Olympics in 2010 is perhaps the most famous modern example where Henderson's greatest goal in Canadian history finally met a challenger in Sidney Crosby's overtime golden goal winner against Team USA. While today the relationship between hockey and Canadian identity is certainly not as solid nor as even embraced as it once was, there is no question that in 1972... For one brief moment, Canada was the world's superpower. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on SoundCloud, and you can find us at our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com, and of course you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. I want to thank you for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Take care.